Let's see. Turkey at Thanksgiving, presents at Christmas, Easter egg hunts at church, fireworks at the res. The Ross Barnett Reservoir. Ah, foreshadowing. (laughs) So what is the name of this game again? I'm just trying to think of longstanding traditions that have been passed down generationally, and we've yet to change or deviate from them. Okay, let me give it a try. Giving dressed up for Halloween, in trick-or-treating, the New Year's Eve countdown. Ooh, casual Fridays at the office. Whoever came up with that one deserves an award. Yeah, these are all traditions that we can identify with, like beer at football games. I'm not sure if that qualifies as a full-on tradition. Sure it is. Okay, well, I'm not an expert on that topic, so I'll throw it back to you, Bo. (laughs) Since we're on the subject of football, and of course, this is red flag after all, it was also a tradition to fly the rebel flag, commonly the Confederate flag, at Ole Miss football games. Yeah, but in my opinion, that doesn't quite compare with presents at Christmas. Maybe one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to change things like our state flag and the Confederate emblem on it is because people are so steeped in tradition. But if it wasn't for people breaking those traditions, the Mississippi we know would look much different than it does today. And this may be a bit of a stretch, but if it wasn't for James Meredith deciding that he was going to break from societal traditions and become the first African-American to attend Ole Miss, then the rebel flag could still be flying on campus today. And once a place or university like Ole Miss becomes all-inclusive, then the school flag should represent the entire student body, not just a percentage. Yeah, that sounds like a familiar argument. I'm Shalise Hall. And I'm Bo York. And this is Red Flag. So you mentioned civil rights activist James Meredith. I read that he and his brother were once riding on a train from Chicago to Mississippi when the train stopped in Memphis. Meredith was then ordered to give up his seat to a white passenger and spent the remainder of the train ride standing up. After that incident, he decided to dedicate his whole life to making sure that African-Americans were treated equally. James Meredith and his story is a prime example of what change can do to tear away the constructs of racism. There's usually a rebel, no pun intended, who makes a stand and goes against the grain. It's not always popular, and it can be a lonely existence, I'm sure, but well worth the sacrifice. Well worth it indeed. I'm interested to know more about your meeting with Dr. Marvin King. He's the Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies at the University of Mississippi. You know, King is originally from Texas, which he described as a state that shares a lot of similarities to Mississippi while still being significantly different. So he admittedly wasn't as familiar with our flag's history. You know, I tell people this. Uh, I hope people don't take offense. But, uh, you know, when we first moved here, my, my wife described this place as a Disneyland of the Confederacy. You know, there is the Confederate statue at the time. There was you know, Dixie Drive, Confederate Drive. You have the flag. There's the cemetery on campus. It's this place is homage to the Confederacy by physical appearances. So, you know, it was an adjustment, but like I said, not completely unknown to me. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and there was a Robert E. Lee High School there. So, you know, I'm used to these uh, Southern-isms. Man, that is spot on. The Disneyland of the Confederacy. If that's an amusement park, though, I would definitely not want to visit. But if you're into that sort of thing, maybe that's your new vacation spot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, can you imagine coming up with the names? You'd have like the Dixie Drop or (laughs) the Robert E. Lee. So tell me, what did King have to say about the university's connection to the Confederacy and its iconography? It goes back to the university was founded in 1848 and 
12 years later, of course, the Civil War starts and the university famously essentially shut down as many of its students left uh, in the unit, the university grades to go fight in the war. So it wasn't just that the war was happening. It was that you know, so many students here and, and faculty and staff, you know, made a conscious effort to go support the Confederacy. And then, of course, later during the war, uh, you know, Union troops kind of make their way through Oxford. And so, uh, you know, there was some real live, you know, history, you know, that took place here. You know, like many places on the East Coast, uh, you know, during the colonial era, they, you know, remember. Wow. So one moment you're off to college and the next you're at war. Exactly. But while the university may have a direct correlation with the Civil War, it's been said that the university's nickname Ole Miss is a residual from the Old South as well. So what I'm curious to know is what King had to say about the origins of the name Ole Miss. Well, believe it or not, according to Dr. King, during the 1920s, there was a contest to name the university's yearbook, and the name Ole Miss was the winner. Over time, that name kind of migrated to encompass the entire school. That is crazy. So on the plantation, the name Ole Miss is the name that slaves would give to their mistresses at the house. Right. But you know what I found completely mind-blowing? The university's yearbook actually already had a nickname before. It was called The Flood up until the 1920s when the Great Mississippi Flood occurred. After that, they decided the name was in poor taste. <laughs> Wait, I don't know whether to be amused or just disappointed. How can you think The Flood was offensive but not Ole Miss? Well, during that time period, there wasn't really anyone around to object. A perfect example as to why representation is so important. Now let's fast forward to the 60s, where James Meredith decides to shake things up a bit and integrate the University of Mississippi. James Meredith, uh, a serviceman, had been in the Air Force, uh, stationed overseas, a native of Mississippi. He returns home. He, in Asia, he saw that African-American servicemen were treated with, uh, you know, respect and equality. And so he comes home and he's disappointed that the same does not uh, hold true at home. And so he, he decides he wants to go to the University of Mississippi because it is the flagship university. and He wants the best education he can get. He's a citizen of the state. And so he applies. And there was a long drawn out process that takes about 18 months uh, that culminates in the fall of 1962 when he does matriculate here at the university. But of course, the courts are involved all the way up to the Supreme Court. Back in 1960, Mississippi elected Ross Barnett governor based largely on his staunch opposition to integration. Yeah, that was his real campaign song. He even went on to explain his commitment to segregation to a BBC reporter on the floor of the Democratic National Convention. Would you say in a sentence to British viewers why you oppose this platform of the Democratic Party which seeks to give Negro Americans their full rights under the Constitution? In the first place, it is contrary to the constitutional provisions of our Constitution. If this, uh, now then, there's no provision in the Constitution anywhere giving the federal government a right to deal in local affairs. It's just not there. But the federal government does have the, the Constitution does guarantee to all Americans equal rights under the law, doesn't it? Equal rights, that's true, that's true. But the states are capable of giving those equal rights. So by 1962, it's really no surprise that Barnett was leading the charge against integration. 
uh, the governor, Governor Ross Barnett at the time, leads a, a, basically a rally at a University of Mississippi football game. This was back when the university still played a lot of its games in Jackson. When he was down there in Jackson, I think Ole Miss was playing Kentucky. And he gives this rally and, you know, and he states about how he wants to defend our traditions. And, and language matters. And, and this is when the language of traditions and status quo and states' rights all becomes wrapped up again with this Confederate iconography. In fact, at halftime, a giant Confederate battle flag was brought out on the field. This is at Jackson Veteran Memorial Stadium, just right up the street from where we're recording right now. That year, the Mississippi football team went undefeated, the only time they ever had. But it was Ross Barnett that got the crowd going wild. Mississippi. I love her people. I'm accustomed. I love and I respect our heritage. And eventually, of course, Barnett relents, although he never really relents. It's only because JFK, President Kennedy, sends in. U.S. Marshals and National Guard and folks to ensure that Meredith can can enter. Now, this is really amazing. Both President Kennedy and his brother, the attorney general, were on the phones with Barnett and his attorney to work out a way to get James Meredith in. And a warning here, the accents that you are about to hear are absolutely incredible. Now, let me, let me say this. Uh, you know what I'm up against, Mr. President? I took an oath in order to buy for the laws of this state and our Constitution here and the Constitution of the United States. I'm, I'm on the spot here, you know. Well, now, you've got to... Uh, I've taken an oath to do that, and you know what our laws are with reference to Yes, I understand that. But and, now we got uh, the... And uh, that's our law, and uh, it seems like the Court of Appeals didn't pay any attention to that. Right. Well, of course, the, the problem is, Governor, that uh, I got my responsibility just like you have yours. And my responsibility, of course, is to the... I realize that, and I appreciate that so much. Well, now, here's the thing, uh, Governor. I will... Uh, the Attorney General can talk to uh, Mr. Watkins tomorrow. What I want, would like to do is to try to work this out in an amicable way. We don't want a lot of people down there getting hurt. Thank you. All right. Okay. I appreciate your interest in our poultry program and all those things. Well, we're... we're Thank you so much. Okay, Governor. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right, now. Sir. Thank you. All right. Hello? Yes, sir. General, how are you? Fine, Governor. How are you? Fine, fine. I uh, talked to Mr. Watkins, you know, earlier this morning. Oh, yeah. And uh, he really uh, did not have uh, much of a suggestion. He had uh, mentioned yesterday uh, uh, the possibility of our coming in tomorrow, uh, Monday, uh, with marshals, and uh, that, uh, that uh, as uh, under our understanding for Thursday, that uh, uh, the marshals would show up and that uh, you and the others would step aside, Mr. Meredith would come into the university. Well, he felt that when he mentioned, uh, he talked to me today, he said that he thought that that uh, would create some problems uh, which they could not overcome. And uh, he suggested at that time uh, some alternatives which were uh, not uh, very satisfactory. And we don't want to have a, you know, it's very easy to... Let me say this, they're calling, calling me and others from all over the state, wanting to bring a thousand, wanting to bring five hundred. And 200 and all such as that, you know. I know. We don't want such as that. I know. Well, we don't want to have a uh, we don't want to have a lot of people getting hurt or killed down there. That's, that's crazy. But of course, two people die, you know, on campus during that night of rioting when uh, Meredith finally enrolls. 
I mean, the amount of resolve, determination, and not to mention the manpower it took for one man just to attend school. I'm not sure if that was even the most difficult part. You're now among one of hundreds of peers who more than likely don't even want you there. Well, it, it, it did take a person of immense fortitude to be able to not only go through the legal struggle to get in, but then also to withstand the ostracism once he was here. But once he did it, it did open the doors. It was not an immediate floodgate. It was a slow trickle of African-American students for the next several years. But by the time you get to the 1970s, you start to have entering freshman classes of dozens of Black students. And so they're not alone on campus. You know, but there's, I would say it's, you know, it's fits and starts, you know, one, two steps forward, one step backwards as far as race relations on this campus all the way up to the present. I think the last three, you know, administrations on this campus, and I'm just speaking to my my own personal experience on this campus, understand the need to look at our history in the mirror and that that's the way to improve both internally but also externally you know how people perceive the university officially speaking you know the administration are doing these things that many universities did a generation ago but we're doing them now better late than never it's not enough for some people but it's more than enough for other people uh, the universities and uh, i'm glad i'm not an administrator <laughs> You know, it's worth referencing last week's episode with Dr. Byron Ori, the professor at Jackson State University, doing biopolitical research. It's when you study African-Americans who are presented with stimuli like the police or the Confederate flag, and you see the images have a psychological response. In a nutshell, what Dr. Ori's been trying to do is determine if Confederate imagery, among other things, creates trauma. Is it traumatizing to actually see that Confederate imagery? So with this process in mind, we asked Dr. King if he thought Meredith had experienced daily trauma at the Disneyland of the Confederacy. Oh, sure. You know, by all accounts, he had to deal with a lot. There were effigies hung. The students who lived in the dorm room above him would take turns bouncing a basketball all night so he couldn't get any rest. Uh, People didn't want to talk to him. People wouldn't want to sit next to him in the library or the cafeteria. You know, a handful of faculty befriended him, most notably James Silver of the history department would welcome Meredith into his home and have him over for meals. And many people who did befriend him were kind of afraid to do so publicly. Uh, But Silver was one of the small handful that did so publicly. Uh, So it was trying because he was alone often, alone metaphorically. He he often had his, or most of the time he had a, a detail of U.S. Marshals there to look over his safety. But, you know, he was he was alone most of the time. It was not a welcoming environment. Sir, there's been a great deal of turmoil and conflict. Two people have been killed. Do you have any feelings of guilt? Have you given that any second thought? I'm very sorry that uh, anyone had to get hurt or killed. Of course, I think that's an unfair question to me. I don't believe any of you believe that I had anything to do with that. How are you getting along in school, sir? Just fine. Just fine. How are these students uh, have been talking to? Have there been any reactions? Uh, acting like students, I suppose. Is this a kind of a lonely life for you, despite all these people around you? I've been living a lonely life a long time. 
Listening to stories like these from activists who've endured and made the impossible possible just so that we could have luxuries that we perhaps take for granted sometimes, it really puts things in perspective. And just add them to the thousands who have died either holding on to racial constructs or those in the past who are trying to break away from them. It makes you ask, will it ever be enough? Meredith himself almost became a casualty soon after he finished at the University of Mississippi. In 66, he decided to walk from Memphis to Jackson in a solitary protest called the March Against Fear. And in the process, he was actually shot by a sniper. He was marching through Mississippi Lead my people what he thought was right Last I heard of my boy Jay Murders. Some evil man tried to take his life. Later on, civil rights activists uh, like Martin Luther King and Floyd McKissick and Stokely Carmichael continued the march in Meredith's name until he could rejoin them. Imagine each day that Meredith walked onto the campus at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, that that Confederate battle flag was waving. And although it took them a minute, and by a minute I mean years, the university seemed to understand that while the flag plays a significant role in history, it alienates people and celebrates a past that we should not be so proud of. You know, Dr. King made a rather poignant statement when speaking of the former University of Mississippi Chancellor Robert C. Kayat. And I believe we should view the state of Mississippi through a similar lens. Kayat wanted this university to be a national university of note, not a, not a state university, not a regional university but a national and international research university of the highest order, attracting undergraduates and graduate students from all over the world. And you have to be an open, inclusive, hospitable place. And if you're going to get the best faculty, if you're going to get the best coaches, if you're going to get the best students, you know, we were opening up an honors college and the Croft Institute and, you know, our pharmacy and accounting programs are our top 10 programs. But if you want to be number one, you've got to be open to everybody. And we probably needlessly cost ourselves millions of dollars of productivity because of these symbols when you're not an opening hospitable place. And so if you want to take the next step and be the best, in some ways you have to mimic what other universities do. And uh, politically, that's not always popular here in the state. But, you know, his goal was to be the best university. Kayat's goal is for this to be the best university it could be. And in so doing, he had to take on some of these cultural issues. I hope we get this. If Mississippi is going to maximize its potential, compete with surrounding areas, and be a substantial national and global contender in education and commerce, to be the best version of itself. And to attract major businesses that can help our state and people grow socially, culturally, and economically and retain and attract our biggest and brightest asset, which are the people who are here, then we must have and promote a healthy environment of inclusivity and acceptance, not one that almost always appears to be divided by racial turmoil. And that won't happen until we learn and accept that although old traditions may never die, they can, in fact, be broken. Welcome to Mississippi.
Red Flag is produced by Pottery Studios and hosted by Bo York and Shalise Hall. Our music is by Clouds and Crayons, with additional music provided by Lokai and Tiffany. Album art by Tyler Tadlock. This episode was written by Rachel James Terry and edited by H.P. Stewart. Transcriptions by Daisy Stackpole. Special thanks to advising producers Roderick Red and Derek Russell. Be sure to see our show notes for additional credits and links to the stories referenced in this episode. If you want to learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast, please visit redflagpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at redflagpod.